to 1 Peter in the third chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I may not know about camp, but I do know what I'm supposed to be teaching this morning. And really, that's my piece, right? Um, so that said, 1 Peter, and we're going to start in chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to remind you the context of the verses that we're in in chapter 2, verse 11. Peter is writing to this group of disciples who are scattered abroad. He's writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. This group of misfits brought together by faith in the one who came to set the captives free, give sight to the blind, uh, those who were oppressed and captivated by sin, he's set them free. And yet at the same time, Jesus said, when you're persecuted... Uh, in a town, he said, go to the next town. And what he meant by that is you will be persecuted. And so allow that persecution that I've allowed in your life to move you to where I want you. And, and so they would move to the next town and they would take with them what they had. And that was Jesus. Um, and so as they would head to the next town, uh, they would be tempted to live in that town and you have two options. When you live in a culture that's erosive to your faith, you can either become like the culture and not have to deal with the problem, or you can clash with the culture. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he clashed with the culture. He didn't do it just for funsies. He did it because he was from a kingdom that's not of this world. And so how are we as Christians to live in the world that we live in, even though the world isn't going, hey, go Jesus. It's going, hey, go flesh. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, whatever's easiest, whatever feels good, do it. Whatever's in your heart, let it rip. And what Jesus said is, um, through the pen of Paul here, he says, Beloved, I beg you as foreigners or sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust. Deny your flesh. Deny what feels good. Not for the sake of denying it, but he says, deny your fleshly lust because they war against your soul. He says, have your conduct honorable among the pagans or the Gentiles. Do this so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, which they have seen, glorify God in the day of visitation. That when they recount and tell others, do you know what those Christians are doing? And they're doing it to speak unwell of you. They'll say things about you and God will be pleased, even if man isn't. And so he says, abstain from the flesh, obey the spirit, and you'll have peace within your soul and you'll have peace with God. And if you'll do this, you'll give glory to God by your conduct. And so we talked about last week, our conduct starts outside of our home. It starts in the Christian's relationship to the government that he's born into. How many of us pick the nation we were born into? Yeah, me neither. You know, whether you want to look at it like this or not, you didn't pick where you were born. The guy that's in China and has to have church underground, he didn't pick it either. Now, for those of you that are like, stinking California. The people that were born in California did not pick that they were born there. Some people move there, 
Or if you're from the other side of the camp and you go, people in Northeast you know, United States or people in the Bible Belt, we didn't pick where we were born into. We didn't, some of us picked where we live now. But I say all that to say the people that are oppressed and in different nations, born in Africa, in Zambia, these little children that they're blessing right now through Eat to Feed and the thing that we got to do as part of a church, we went up to Deloge, had a nice picnic, ate pulled pork, got to buy a t-shirt, kids got to play, there was ice cream, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on. I saw a video this week that we got to be a blessing to several villages in Africa where they're doing outreaches and feeding communities a healthy meal, and they're sharing the gospel with them. They didn't pick to be born in a poor nation. They just were. Does that mean that God doesn't love them? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, he, he made some people poor, if you want to look at it that way, or he allowed people to be poor so that the glory of God would be shown in their lives. Uh, Jesus actually said, blessed are you when you're poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 5. And so sometimes when people are poor, they're actually more apt to receive the gospel because they know they're poor. A couple of weeks ago, Aaron Bobing was here and he preached on Luke chapter 4 where Jesus reads in the synagogue from the scroll and he said, yeah, (laughs) I've come to proclaim freedom to the poor or the gospel of good news to the poor freedom to those who are captive sight to the blind and he made this remark and i I think it's super important to repeat it he said if you've never recognized yourself as someone who is poor or captive to sin or blind the reality is you may not understand you may have never received the gospel because the gospel is for the poor. The gospel is for the blind. The gospel is for those who are captive. And for those of us that have received the gospel, we've been set free, whether the government lets us be free or not. And so he says, in conduct, we have this relationship outside of the home. We are to interact with the government God's way. And I won't go back over that. But then he talked about master's and submitting to masters as servants. And um, we may not be slaves to our bosses, but sometimes it might feel that way. But we're bond slaves because we keep going because we get a, we've chosen this job and they pay us. And every time you show up to work, you're saying, I'm going to submit to your authority so I can get paid. And so he tells us how to be Christians in the workplace. But in verse 21, he says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. So if you do the right thing, and you submit to the government, or you submit to your master, or to those who are in authority over you, he says this, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered. And so if doing the right thing causes you to suffer in any way, guess what? Christ can teach you to do that because he did all the right things. Everything he did was absolutely the right thing, and yet he suffered for doing the right thing. And so he left us an example, verse 21 says, that you should follow in his steps. So in verse 22, look at this. Look at this. This is the resume of Jesus Christ from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin. 
He was not deceitful with his words. He didn't tell lies. He didn't do it for his own benefit. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I was reading that this morning. I was like, I don't know what revile means. So I googled it. And revile means when they criticized him in an abusive or angry, insulting manner, he didn't, criti- he didn't do that in return. He didn't, say, he didn't just say to us, turn the other cheek. He turned literally his own cheek. When was the last time that you were criticized? And my wife's here. She can tell you I don't take criticism well. But if I am to follow the example of Jesus Christ, when he was criticized, not constructively, but in an abusive or angry, insulting manner by someone who did not have his best interest in mind, by someone who was not for him, he was criticized, and yet he did not respond by doing it in return. That's powerful. When he suffered, he did not threaten, I'm going to get you back. You're going to get yours. He didn't. He suffered, and he didn't say anything. But look at this. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. I don't have to judge you because my father will take care of that. He is the righteous judge. And now Jesus is actually the judge. Not only is he the savior, not only is he the advocate, he's essentially our defense attorney, except he's like a godly defense attorney, but he's also the righteous judge. So, look at this. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, they both say, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And yet, he himself bore our sins, not his own, our sins on his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness instead by whose stripes his beating, his lashing, his flesh being torn, (laughs) we were healed. His brutal murder meant for our healing. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so maybe submission to the government or to our masters feels like suffering. But we have an example of suffering. So the idea that Peter's writing about here is that if you feel like you're suffering, you do it with gratitude because Christ suffered on your behalf. So be willing to suffer in order for his behalf, for his glory to shine through us. So it starts outside of the home with the relationships outside of our family, but then it doesn't stop there. Submission doesn't just stop outside of the home where everybody can see. It needs to be within the home. And this is a difficult passage to teach because it's hard. How many of you love to talk about government and politics? Yeah, me neither. Uh, How many of you like to talk about being servants and how great you are at it? Yeah, me neither. How many of you like to talk about relationships within the home? Me neither. Why? because I'm not that great at it. I don't like to talk about what I'm not good at. I'll talk to you all day about what I'm good at. And so in chapter 3, he says, wives, 
Now, I recognize I'm not a wife, and I'm not a woman, but that doesn't mean that Peter's authority in this doesn't matter. And I also recognize that I'm looking around at a room that doesn't have perfect family relationships. Neither do I. But the reality is God has a perfect way for us to live with our spouses, to live with our husbands and our wives, and to live with everyone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. He says, wives, likewise. Now, the likewise is not comparing to another human being that has lived unrighteously. He says, likewise, after talking about Jesus, the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. That's the mark that we're to be aiming for. Not some person not some relationship, not our parents and how they did it. Even if it was the most, uh, most godly relationship, that's not to be our example. Christ is our example. And so he says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, meaning the word of God, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment, wives again, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Now, he's not saying don't adorn yourselves at all outwardly. He says don't make it only outwardly. He says don't let it be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. He's talking about adornment. If you want to make yourselves beautiful to your husband, he says, he says, adorn yourselves inwardly, the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very, very precious in the sight of God. He says, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's great for Sarah, but my husband's not Abraham at all. Or the man in my life is nothing like a man of faith. He actually denies the Lord's existence. Well, guess what? (laughs) Neither did Abraham. And we're going to read about Abraham. The example that God gave was Abraham. And I love this because Abraham's faults were pretty much highlighted for us to see. And so if you feel like, you know, my husband or the guy that I respect or I'm trying to respect and submit myself... He's not like Abraham. Well, guess what? (laughs) He might be more like Abraham than you think. Um, But before we get there, I want to point out to anybody single in here, he talks about not letting your adornment be outwardly only. You want to adorn yourself with what you want to attract men to you with. And the reality is we live in a culture that focuses only on the outward And when you spend all that time and effort on the outward, you're going to draw the attention of men who are looking with their eyes. And men are not going to be looking for character. They're going to naturally look with the eyes. 
Now, I'm not saying make yourself look homely, uh, but you know what? Be okay with homely. Because the reality is, uh, if you dress a little bit more homely, or maybe I would call it chaste, guess what? You're going to draw the attention of the right kind of guy. You're going to draw the attention of a godly man. And he may not even see it at first. We're not wired that way. But dress in a way so you don't stumble your brothers. If you don't want them thinking about you in a certain way, then don't dress that way, frankly. As a guy, I appreciate when women don't show everything because then I don't have to spend my whole time going like this. Oh, gosh. You know, I wish men wouldn't look at women like that. I agree. I wish that they wouldn't. But guess what? Don't show off your hiney and they won't. They can't. They're looking at what you're showing them. And the reality is, if you're showing them things, you're going to draw their attention for all the wrong reasons, and you're going to get yourself into trouble, and then you're going to blame him. Now, that doesn't take away the responsibility of men. Men, don't stare at women. Don't objectify them. <laughs> Look for women that have inward character, because ultimately, I don't care how pretty they are, that's going to fade. It's going to go away. One day, they're not going to look like that anymore. And then what do you got left? And if you've got hidden inward beauty, uh, it doesn't fade. As a matter of fact, if it's in the Lord, it's going to get more beautiful as time goes on. And it will be way better than the beauty that fades. And so I'm off my hobby horse, but it's a warning. It's a very real warning. I have a daughter and I have a son. And I'm going to have to go through all the stuff that no one ever talked to me about. But if you'll listen to the, wor- the Lord's wisdom in this, it will keep you from sin, but it will also keep you from heartache when that person really didn't care about your character, they just cared about what you look like, and that goes away. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be left with that kind of sorrow and despair. And so he says, women, wives... Don't let yourself only be outwardly adorned. But notice this. He says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Women right now, right now, everything in media, everything on TV is telling you, you got to take yours and you got to be yourself and you got to be loud and proud. But I want to point out that it is a gentle and a quiet spirit that is powerful. It is a powerful thing. Sometimes when I do the wrong thing and my wife is gentle and willing to yield and the Holy Spirit empowers her to be trusting Him and not so much trying to correct me, she ducks and prays for me and the Lord whacks me. And it is a powerful thing. And she she wins me without a word. And that's what he's saying here. I want to share a story about uh, Mr. Steve Persley's mom, because I just got to hear a little bit of a story, and I hopefully I tell it correctly. Um, but they were in California, and they um, were not walking with the Lord. This is Steve's parents. And, um, and his mom started going to a fellowship of ladies that were studying the Word of God. And she was kind of being won by them, and she wanted to be around them, and she liked what they were teaching, and so she was more and more wanted to be around other Christians. 
And as she did that, uh, her husband did not like that because she wasn't around as much anymore. And I don't remember the exact details, but essentially he communicated that to her. Hey, how come you're not around? I don't know if I want you hanging out with these Bible thumpers. And as a result of that, he was uh, vocal with her about that. And so she was like, well, I'm going to go anyway, I think. And essentially she went and she started sharing this with the ladies that were at the women's Bible study. And one of the older women in faith with wisdom said, you need to submit to your husband. You need to submit to his authority in your life. And so she did. And she stopped going to the ladies' fellowship. And she went home. And, uh, and he was blown away by that. He, he didn't expect that. He expected a fight, probably. And what was funny about that is that um, it actually started winning him over to faith in Jesus because he'd never seen anything. Willingness to yield, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit. And so he was won by her silently going, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord with this. So turn with me to Genesis 12 because there's a very, very similar story about Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God has spoken to Abram at the time and told him, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your homeland, and I want you to go to a land that I will in the future show you. Now, if you've ever gone on a trip with your wife and you've said, hey, let's go on a trip, where are we going? I don't know yet. We're just going to, we're supposed to go. God told me. Um, I want you to notice that in this story, there's never any uh, sort of thought where Sarah goes, nah, I don't want to go, or why? Now, maybe they had a conversation and there was a little bit of a wrestling, but Scripture doesn't highlight that. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we always highlight Abraham's or Abram's willingness to yield and go. But how many times have you thought about Sarah and her step of faith? I have to leave my family. I have to leave your family. We're going to a place that we don't know the destination. What's the weather like? Are the kids going to be safe? Of course, they didn't have kids. But all of these unknowns. Sarah was willing to yield in this. She followed her husband. But in verse 10, there's some time that's passed, and there was a famine in the land that God took them to. And Abram went down to Egypt because there was food there, and there was water, a place to dwell. And it says there, for the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. He says, you're a beautiful wife, and because of that, I fear for my life. He says, therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, Abram says, but they will let you live. 
Please say you are my sister, that I, may we be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So Abram's trying to save his own skin. He's not quite trusted the Lord with this circumstance yet. And so he comes up with a plan. Why don't you just tell him that I'm your sister? And then if you do that, they won't kill me because of how beautiful you are. So they can take you as their wife. And so it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. Now this tells me that she was extremely beautiful, that she wasn't just some desert dweller, homely looking wife, but she was very beautiful so much that the the Pharaoh's household go, man, the Pharaoh's going to want to meet this lady. He's going to want to add her to his harem. Um, And he had one. And so uh, the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. (laughs) And so essentially her submission to her husband has gotten her taken from her husband and placed in a harem. And he's given all these gifts to Abram so he can keep her as his wife. And it doesn't give us anything in there about her arguing with him about it. She submitted to her husband's authority. And because of that, she's in a bad circumstance, in my opinion. And I wonder how Abram felt about this. Like, hey, I'm alive, but I kind of wish I was dead right now because here I am, I'm not protecting my wife and she's been taken from me from the king of the land, placed in a harem. This is foolish from several different angles, but I, I want to focus on Sarai's submission to her husband's authority. And I also want to point out that when she submitted to her husband's authority, even his foolishness, who protected her? Verse 17 says that God does. The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And when Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Who protected Sarai? God did. God protects those who obey him, always, even when it makes no sense. And so you would think, hey, Abram's learned his lesson. Move on. We don't ever have to go through that again. But turn with me a couple chapters over to Genesis 20. He's older, he's wiser, he's walked with the Lord, he's seen him deliver him over and over again. And yet in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham journeyed from a place to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Again, the same exact thing, a different place, different location, but the same stupid decision. She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Again, the same thing, different circumstances. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man. 
Look at the, the pursuing love and the protection that God gives over his daughter. And said to him, you, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that Abimelech <laughs> fears the Lord, it seems, a little bit more than Abraham, who is telling a half-truth to this king. Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did Abraham not say to me, She is my sister? And she even herself said, He is my brother. And in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also am the one who withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So the king says, I didn't touch her. And God said, That's because I protected you. Because you would be a dead man already. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So in Psalm chapter 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And unless the Lord protects the house, those who stay up nightly and watch, watch in vain. So I want to point out, ladies, if you will obey the Lord and submit to the men that God has placed in your life, he will protect you when they make bonehead moves. There's, there's hope in that. Husbands, you're going to make bonehead moves. You're going to make good moves, but you're going to make bonehead moves. God's going to protect your wives and your daughters. Rest in that. He's the one that protects. He's the one that gives wisdom. He's the one that gives grace and mercy when we are asleep at the wheel. And I find rest in that. So, back to 1 Peter. He says, Wives, um, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, even though it looks like he didn't always deserve to be, whose daughters you are if you do good, and without fear of what your husbands might do. Don't be afraid of what your husbands might do. Submit to their authority. Now, there are circumstances, uh, abusive relationships, uh, physical abuse especially, where I believe that it's time to go. Um, and so you have to pray through those things. But most of the time, uh, it's not one of those where you need to go. It's where you need to duck and to pray and let the Lord whack your husband because he is faithful and he is able uh, to correct those men in your lives. So, verse 7, there is a verse towards husbands. He says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding. Now, understanding, men, takes listening. Listening takes time. Take the time to listen and to understand even when you don't. It will be worth it. Give honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel. Weaker vessel, by the way, is not a slander against women. It's a reality. God's made us differently. Wives are not as muscular as men. Now, that's not always the case. But the reality is God has made men to be protectors and the wives are weaker vessels, not only weaker physically, 
but also emotionally. Do not despise your wives' emotions. Emotions are God-given. Sometimes they can be overly sensitive, but that's why men are not wired to be as sensitive. We can do battle. We can make decisions when things are overwhelming. So trust the Lord in that. But men, we need to honor our wives as the weaker vessels, protecting them, but also recognizing that even though they are weaker in some ways and stronger in others, they are joint heirs together with us in the grace of life. And also, look at the end of that verse, verse 7. Do all these things that your prayers may not be hindered, that your communication with the life source, with God himself, may not be hindered. So in reality, ladies, if the men in your life are not dwelling you with you in understanding, if they're not giving honor to you as their weaker vessel, if they're not recognizing you as equals or being heirs together with the grace of life, they're here, their prayers are going to be hindered. They're getting cut off in some way. God is going to shut them down. He will correct them. But also, recognize husbands. If you've sinned against your wife and you've caused there to be turbulence that doesn't need to be there because of your foolishness, um, God doesn't want to hear your prayers. Get right with her. Repent quickly. Um, many times, it's this very verse that causes me to humble myself and to allow the Lord to correct me and to make me uh, apologetic and actually sorrowful over my sin and try to correct it and make things right so that my relationship with the Lord isn't hampered. So, husbands, dwell with them in understanding. And Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, not only does it benefit your relationship with the Lord, not only does it benefit your relationship with your spouse, but actually it benefits you personally, men. In verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, submit to one another in the fear of God. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also, look at this, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is to be subject to the, the leadership of Christ, so also the wives should be subject to the, their own husbands in everything. In everything. We are to, wives, follow our husband's lead. But verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her laying down his very life and pouring out his blood for her benefit. So, young ladies, if you find someone you think, this is the one, God's brought them into my life. If he's not willing to suffer or lay down his rights or his life, if he's not willing to subject himself to Christ in order to honor you, send him packing. And if you can't, I will. I got a shotgun just like every other dad. But I won't even have to use it. Because the reality is, if he doesn't love Jesus more than he claims to love you, he's going to be a worthless pile of trash. And I mean that in every sense of the term. 
seen them, watched too many gals just decide, you know what? I can bring him around. No, he's supposed to bring you around. He's supposed to lift you up spiritually. And if you don't, then use your voice. Tell him, hit the road, Jack, and don't come back. You want to be empowered? You just were. Because Christ is not honored in a relationship where the guy doesn't care a bit about Christ, but only wants you physically. And there will be tons. There will be plenty. Because there's some beautiful girls in this room. But the reality is, God has way better for you. And so, again, on my hobby horse. But I think it's the Lord's hobby horse. Verse 22, uh, 25 Husbands, love your wives as wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Men, we are to sanctify or cleanse our wives with our words using the word of God that we might present her, our wives, to God one day. Our presence in the lives of these ladies ought to actually draw them closer to the Lord and actually benefit and make them more like Christ by our example. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife is actually loving himself. We love ourselves naturally, but if we love our wives like Christ loves us, we're actually benefiting ourselves in the long run. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And so, back in First Peter, he says, finally, verse 8, all of you. So maybe husbands and wives hasn't felt like it applied to you. But here he says, finally, all of you. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, or the idea is show brotherly love. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Again, verse 9 is pointing back up to what we read before. Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not return evil for evil, but he actually returned life for evil. And then he says, but on the contrary, blessing. So in return for evil, pronounce blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We have been blessed so we can be a blessing. Just like Abraham, he said, in blessing you, I'm going to bless all the other nations. So also we, in receiving Christ, we've been blessed. We've received life. We've received life in return for evil and wickedness and sin. We give him our sin. He gives us his life. And then that life he now lives through us so that we can give life into the lives of others. And so then he quotes from Psalm chapter 34 and says, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from speaking evil and his lips from speaking lies. Let him turn away from evil 
and instead do righteousness or good. Let him seek peace in his relationships is the idea and pursue peace with all men. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is always against those who do evil. So this last section, verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for doing the right thing or for righteousness sake, guess what? You're blessed. Blessed are you when you suffer for doing the right thing. Because guess what? Your reward will be in heaven. Your reward will be just as real as the reward you think you'll get here. It'll actually be more real, and it will be from God himself. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But it says in verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify? Some of your translations might say, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Recognize that Jesus is different than you. Recognize that God is not like you. Set apart means to set apart him in your mind from everyone else. He is unlike any person that you have ever experienced or met. He's not jaded. He's not bitter. He's not judgy, if you want to call him that. He's not gossipy. He's not slandering. He's life-giving. Look at the way he interacted with every person he came into contact with. He was who he said he was. To those who were self-righteous, he called them out on it. He didn't care what status they were in society. To those who were called out of their sin and brought before him to slander, he showed grace. And he expressed to them, go and sin no more. I forgive you. He spoke blessing. And so in this passage, he says, if you do the right thing, don't be afraid of anybody that threatens you for doing the right thing. He says, but set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a defense or a reason to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. If your conduct matches what, we, what we've learned last week and this week, people will ask you, how can I know if I'm living righteously before God? It's going to turn people's heads and they will be so disturbed by it, they will be so provoked by your godly conduct that they will say to you, why are you living this way? They will. They won't be able to help it. And I don't want you to feel condemned if you know you've fallen short of what Peter has commanded us to do. I want you to be provoked to try and do it, to try to provoke people to ask you why. Because they're going to see your conduct and go, why? And then you'll be able to say and explain to them what God has done on your behalf. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why meekness and fear? Recognizing that the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you answer their question could mean for them life 
for eternity or a rejection of Jesus for eternity. We have that kind of power in what we share about Jesus. And so with meekness and fear, pray for people so that when they ask you, God will give you his heart for them and the words to say before them so that he can win them for the gospel. Having a good conscience, he says, that when they defame you as evildoers, and some of them will see your conduct and say, well, you're just a bigot, or you're just, you hate women, you, you want them to be oppressed, you'll be able to live with a good conscience so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct or, again, criticize you in an abusive or angrily insulting manner, guess what? They may be ashamed in Christ, for it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so, for you this morning, I pray that you understand that the will of the Lord isn't always easy, but it is good, and it will change the way that you interact with people over time. It will take time. But as you allow him to take more and more of your heart and change your heart towards not just the people that you love, but towards your enemies, toward the people that are angry at God and want nothing to do with Jesus, your conduct without a word can win the unbeliever. You don't have to become an apologist. You don't have to become Ken Ham or Billy Graham. You can just be faithful in your daily life. You can just be simply obedient to God's calling on your life, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you work all the time, or whether you're full-time ministry. It doesn't matter. God's going to use those relationships and the way you interact with people outside of your home, the way that you interact with your boss, the way that you interact with your spouse, the way that you interact with your kids, the way that you interact with your angry neighbor, all of it can be used for the glory of God. And then when they see your conduct, my prayer is that they'll see such a change in you, especially those that have known you for a long time, that they'll want to know why you changed. They'll want to know the God behind it, even though they're just going to call it up and say, well, what kind of self-help book did you read? And then you can say, Jesus. And so as we get ready to take communion this morning, I want